All right, 1 Corinthians 15. So I'm going to take a running start at this passage. So go back to verse 1. And you'll recognize the Apostle Paul is starting with um, the resurrection being so integral to the gospel that if you pull the, the pin of the resurrection out of this, the whole gospel falls apart. It says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in, in vain. For I delivered to you, so here's the gospel, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 at one time, most of whom are still alive, some have fallen asleep, and then he appeared to James, to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So he introduces the resurrection as so central to the Christian faith that it must be believed it's of first importance. And he'll say in just a few verses, if we lose the resurrection, we lose hope. We are of all people to be most pitied. So then you come down to verse 12 and 14, and he explains that. And in verse 20, he theologically begins to defend that. So we're going to look in verse 20, and we're going to look at the theology of the resurrection. And so I would just suggest to you that he starts with this kind of theology of first fruits, or maybe I could say this way, a theology of representation by which Christ is the leader in all of those who will be raised from the dead. Verse 20, but in fact, if Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Let's just stop there and, and make sure we, we unpack that clearly. Okay, so he says all those in Christ will be made alive, but he begins by explaining this is a theology that arises out of the garden. When Adam sinned, Romans 5 really clearly says who else sinned? said, when Adam sinned and death has passed to all of us because we have all sinned, Romans 5. So, so theologically, we should know that God is not only okay with, but established representation as a way in which guilt is passed on to others. So when Adam rebelled against God, we also, because we are part of Adam's race, sinned with him. You tracking so far? So that, that's the idea of representation. We're so used to it in our culture, it's funny that we, we kind of flinch when Scripture comes to it. We know this in our country, right? If the government makes a treaty with someone, we have made a treaty with them. If, if the government declares war, you might say, hey, did you hear we're at war? You wouldn't say, did you hear the president's at war? Like, like the U.S. goes to war. And if it's a, it's a situation where the war is long and they need soldiers, you'll be asked to step up, some of you. You might be drafted. I don't know how old that draft goes, but I might be out of danger at this point. <laughs> but we know that's how representation works, right? When Adam sinned, we sinned with him. In fact, and sometimes like people ask the question, well, what would have happened if just Eve sinned? Well, 
I think the Bible's at least clear enough that she didn't represent us, that Adam did, that Adam was the one that God had appointed as the person who represented. And so when in innocence, when in innocence then he chose sin, we also chose with him. When he chose sin, the consequence of sin is death. So, pa- so death passes to all of us. So we come back to verse 20, and he says, hey, I want you to know Christ is a first fruits. Well, if there's first fruits, the implication is that this is a foretaste, this is a sample of what is to come, that now after this, there will be a resurrection for others. Christ has been raised from the dead, now also others will come after that, that this sample is a legitimate foretaste of more resurrections to come. So the question is, well, how? Well, verse 21 then. Just as Adam introduced death by representing all of us, and so death comes to all of us, so also, theologically also, resurrection leads to resurrection for all of those represented by this second Adam. So, like, like theologically, I'm going to picture this graphically. I thought about doing this on my iPad, but I draw badly enough. It probably would be more distracting than helpful. It's, It's Christ joined the human race that he might lead out of those being represented by Adam and establish a new representation so those born in Adam now can find representation of a second Adam, Jesus Christ. And he had to start in Adam's race so that he could redeem and represent and rescue us from being represented by Adam. So so here, then you see that, that's the point. So just as death came through representation, resurrection from the dead also comes through representation. Verse 22 then makes this really clear. For as in Adam, all die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. I think this is one of those theological watershed verses for understanding union with Christ. Here's what union with Christ means. It means to be represented by him so that before God, I receive the blessings and merits of the second Adam. So all those in Christ are made alive. So who is going to be resurrected? All those in Christ. Who will not be resurrected to life? Anyone who's not represented by Christ, and in this case, they'd be represented by whom? Adam. Well, just be honest here. I think the Bible is really clear. Adam doesn't even want to be represented by Adam. I think Adam is saved. So ironically, Adam is in Christ. But theologically, those represented by his rebellion and his sin will experience death eternally unless they too join with Christ through faith and experience the blessing of unity, union with Christ. So so he is theologically showing us that the resurrection is based on representation. It says, but each in his own order. So now he's going to begin unfolding why we may not see resurrections in our life. It's not as though, um, was it Lucy passed away at the beginning of February? It's not as though when Lucy passed away, she was immediately resurrected. Now we would say that she is present with the Lord. The scripture is really clear on that. The nature of how she's with the Lord is actually something we talked about this morning. Scripture is not entirely clear in, in what sense she's with the Lord, but I would say she is aware. She's able to commune with the Lord and worship him. 
but she is still waiting for the resurrection. Right now, then, this passage leads us to understand at least three resurrections. Verse 22, who's the first resurrection? Jesus Christ, the first fruits, right? Who's second? Look down at the end of verse 23. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. We talked about the second coming. That's actually the context of the teaching this morning and equipping hour that Pastor Mike was teaching us. So the second coming, there's going to be another resurrection. So when Christ returns, now you should be thinking here, uh, This I don't want to distract at all in the sermon, but Armageddon. When Christ returns and he establishes um, the defeat of the Antichrist and all of the forces that are opposed to him and he sets up his kingdom, he launches his kingdom program after the battle of Armageddon. Right? That's where you have uh, Matthew 25 where he separates the sheep and the goats. The goats pass on into judgment. The sheep who are believing non-glorified saints enter into his kingdom. But when I say non-glorified, I mean they're just like us today. And they go into the kingdom. Okay, so as you're looking at verse 23, I think it's really clear and actually really helpful for understanding God's program of how things are developing. So then those who are his coming belong to Christ. So who's resurrected if it's not the sheep and the goats? Well, all, at least all of the church age is really clear. All of those who've died during this age will be resurrected and join Christ in his kingdom. So now we have two types of people in the kingdom that are believers, those who are glorified believers and those who are unglorified believers. Okay, Those glorified believers, they're glorified because they've been resurrected with Christ. Okay, Now we continue on. Then comes what? The end. Okay, so we have the kingdom of Christ. It ends, and then he delivers that kingdom of Christ to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign over the kingdom of Christ, or the millennial kingdom, until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So what do we know is happening during the millennial kingdom? Death. And at the conclusion of his kingdom, he destroys death. Won't that be a wonderful society when death is dead? Haley, you seem very concerned. Do you have a question? Yes, I can. Maybe not well, but I will, I will do my best. Here you go. Okay, so if you think about, like, current history, there, like, let me use Lucy as an example. I hope this isn't insensitive. Lucy right now is in heaven. First um, Thessalonians 4, when Jesus returns to rapture the church, Lucy is resurrected first. Then they who are alive, that'd be us, will meet the Lord in the air. That's the church, right? So we, we are with the Lord. We are glorified at that point. That seems to happen before the return of Christ, which is the second resurrection. Okay? Christ establishes his kingdom. We've been resurrected now, so we come back with Christ to set up his kingdom, right? There is, it would seem, that tribulation gap of seven years where people can get saved. They're getting saved after that rapture where we are glorified, and in that seven years, all of those saved, it's at least, there's 144,000 Jews. They go right into the kingdom without getting resurrected. So this is where now I do wish I had my iPad. The, the resurrected ones, so think heaven, glorified. Those living on earth, 
You know, like they're down here. Non-glory. We come back with Christ. They continue. But now we are walking side by side glorified and, and saved, but not yet resurrected or glorified. Does that make sense? The, at that third resurrection. Okay? I think this is helpful because I, I've, I have heard people talk about there being one singular resurrection. Let me just tell you how clearly not biblical that is. There's already been a resurrection. There's at least two. But I think this passage with the then words makes it really clear there's at least three. Christ, then those at his coming, that's the second coming, we talked about it this morning where he sets up his kingdom. Then at the end of his kingdom, when he defeats once and for all death and the powers of hell and sin itself and then delivers the kingdom to God where Christ rules as God's regent forever. Okay? So I realize, I mean, Paul's not laying this out so that we go timelines and we jump into the book of Revelation and we kind of like get all our charts out or anything like that. He's just saying, hey, listen, there are multiple resurrections. So you Corinthians that are trying to get some type of non-bodily resurrection, stop it. Here's how you should understand it to be happening. Okay? I think it's helpful for us, but the real hope-giving thought is that the resurrection is actually accomplishing the spiritual defeat of sin and death. Like, like, it's not merely something that can be abandoned. If you abandon the resurrection, what do you lose? You lose the real victory accomplished in the cross. Look with me in verse 25. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's a fantastically cool verse. Christ looks at enemy or looks at death as an enemy. To be wrecked and ruined under his power and domain. And Christ says, I am the resurrection and the life. And one of the reasons Christians should have such a good theology of life is because death itself is a consequence of rebellion and sin against God. God is the life giver. To be alienated from Christ is to lose life. It's to get death. To be with Christ is to have life and to have the hope of the resurrection. They are hostile to each other. And I just think it's really cool to think of Christ as a mission going about the process of destroying death. And he's going to win. The victory's already been certified in the cross of Christ where he was raised the third day. So all things are put in subjection to him. And his plain, the exception to this is whom? Who's the one being not under Christ's boot, not under Christ's kingship? God himself. So all things are subjected to him. Then the Son himself will be subjected to the one who puts all things in subjection under him so that God, it's probably speaking of the Father here, right? God the Father may be all in all. That is, he is king over all. So how, how is God accomplishing a restoration of his perfect sovereignty? And I don't mean by that that he's not sovereign now. I mean, at that point, sin will be no more. That type of sovereignty. Is God sovereign today? Does he permit sin? One day he will be sovereign and there will be no more sin. Which is really cool. Okay? Christ is his champion. Christ is the victor. Christ defeats death and sin and gains victory. And he does it and the means by which he does it is the wrecking of death and the resurrection. Brendan. 
Yes and no? It's an interesting question. So maybe I'd say it like this. It's like the game is won, but there's still time on the clock. And so the, the Christ has already done all the work to assure himself of the victory. Is, is Satan still at work in this world? Will he be? And is death still at work in this world? But has Christ already accomplished and paid for the victory that will bring total defeat to those enemies? For sure. So at this point, that's where I'm like, okay, literally time, like, I think the Revelation says time will be no more. I don't think the point is that there will be no more sequential movement of time. I think the point is, is that death has had its time. It's done. Satan has had his freedom taken back. He is under the punishment of God in hell. Um, Colossians 1, 18, 16, all things will be submitted to him. Every tongue will confess. So whose tongue is confessing? If it, every tongue is confessing of those above the earth and those under the earth, right? Like, that means Satan. Satan will be in hell grudgingly, I assume, confessing Christ is king. He is Lord. And by that, the Father is glorified. I mean, talk about an utter defeat. When your enemies are confessing your victory, your lordship, your gloriousness, you've won. And that's what's going to happen. I, I, I've mentioned this before, and I find it just so personally encouraging. The battle that you have with sin in your own life will be done. Right? Like Victory has already been accomplished by Christ in the, in the sense of the certification of power to do this. And so I think for us today, there is a sense in which we should be walking in the very power of the resurrection to defeat sin in our lives. But one day that battle will be done. It'd be really nice not to battle, won't it? It'd be really nice not to be battling and doing pretty good and then fall. I don't know if any of you else have that experience, but I do. Okay, I want to I land with verses 29 through uh, 34. Just finish up with the practical concerns he has. Okay, so he proves um, two different things. By, by two different proofs, he, he challenges them. They already know the resurrection is true, just practically. And then he also indicates and warns them on other, other practices. So first, they have baptism for the dead. This is one of those verses every preacher annoys, or excuse me, avoids, because not annoys, but avoids. That's probably a Freudian slip. Um, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the behalf of the dead. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? That's a great question, for which there's a lot of speculation. So apparently the Corinthians have some type of, I'm just going to be honest with my take on this, some type of quirky, mystical belief that's probably not very biblical, which Paul's saying, hey, listen, you're doing this. You already, like, just by the fact that you do this, you know there's life after death, so stop it. Like, it's one of those appeals where just common sense would tell you if you look at yourself in the mirror, you know better. But I, I think it's Mormons. We'll do baptism for the dead. So <clears throat> I, I'm not trying to scare any of you, but a lot of, like, the um, ancestor stuff is about Mormons being baptized for people. And so I think they, I think Ancestry.com is Mormon so that they can trace things and be baptized for dead people um, because they're finding out like all sorts of connections. So 
no, by the way, if you've done Ancestry.com, you're like, oh, wow, I just wanted to find out who my grandparents were and when they came over. And you're not guilty of like participating with Mormons in a spiritual way. Don't be worried about it. My point is, is that this verse, it's, it's like this weird, isolated verse. Paul's not trying to say you should do this. Paul is trying to say, you're already doing something that implies that you say you don't believe in the resurrection, but you're doing stuff that says you do believe in the resurrection. You're not even consistent. Okay, You believe this already. We shouldn't make too much of the theology of it since nowhere else in Scripture does it advocate, teach, or instruct us to do this or approve of it or in any way strengthen our theology of this, which is why cults can run with it. Because if God explained this more for us, the cults wouldn't be doing it. Um, the second proof is a little more practical, and you see the Apostle Paul applying it to himself. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. Now, before you go on, I've had people um, wrongly assume that I die every day, or I die daily, is I think the King James way of saying it, is it's not metaphorical. Right? He's talking about the fact that he's in deathly danger on a constant, ongoing basis. And this is not taking up his cross and following Jesus Christ. This is the fact that he's being stoned and shipwrecked and constantly in physical danger. If there's no resurrection, he's risking everything. If there's a resurrection, he's risking nothing. Right? I mean, he's, he's risking his earthly life in the one sense, but if we read Philippians, he says... Um, to die is gain, right? To live is more expedient for you so that he can continue ministering to them for their joy and faith, but to die is gain. So in that sense, he's risking nothing by, by being in jeopardy physically every day. Verse 32, what do I gain, humanly speaking, if I fought with beasts in Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? And then he says, rather, this is the right theology. If there's no resurrection, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Period. Right? That's the end. We die. If all there is in this life is all there is for anything, why would you give a penny to a church that's selling you a bunch of lies about heaven? Why would you sacrifice? Why would you risk? You know, why would you, why would you give away possessions and go to the mission field and suffer in a different context, in a different culture, with different people? Why would you sacrifice anything if there's no resurrection? And of course, that's a consistent theology, and they know better. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Okay, so verse 33, I think we have just a basic um, point here. Bad theology and bad associates wreck us. They do. Um, I, I, I find this just a fascinating study in people. I, I don't really want to speak much to the particulars, but if you get a really conservative person, um, let's say you get a girl who's grown up in the Midwest and she moves to a beach town, she's horrified by the dress of everyone who's wearing, I mean, they wear nothing in beach towns. I go to ice cream shop and you see girls wearing next to nothing in an ice cream shop. They have flip-flops and a bikini on. And that girl will be like, oh, I would never do that. Two years later, she's doing that. What happened? You just get used to it. Your eyes, your mind, your heart get normalized to that stuff. Why is that that we think that our commitment and devotion to Christ 
will stay strong when we put ourselves in positions of being influenced and being around and being close associates with people who don't love Christ. And do you think you can watch tons of trashy TV, listen to a whole bunch of trashy songs, and your theology and the compass of your morality is not going to shift? It will. So, so I, I think the admonition here is like, whether it's theology or whether it's practice, you are not as stable as you think you are. Be careful. Or maybe you could just like read Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, stand in the way of sinners, nor sit with the scorners. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his delight he should meditate day and night. And he'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, and whatever he does will prosper. Right? Like, like there's this danger of being with sinners in such a way that they move you. And the warning is, is meant to be an, uh, like an antidote, a preventative. You won't know you're being moved. You know, it's like being caught in a current. Everything's moving, and you don't know it until you look at the shore, and you see the shore just moving. That, that will happen to you. So be careful. Choose your friends. So I, like, I'll say it to my kids like this. You can have buddies who aren't good people but you can't have friends who aren't good people. You know, so like if you're on a sports team, you can't control who's on the sports team. Your best athletes are going to be on your sports team, but not your best Christians. Don't get close. Keep your distance if they don't love Jesus. And be the type of friend that others want to be around because you'll move them to be like Jesus. Number two, one of their core problems is just straight up in ignorance of God. Wake up, he says in verse 34 from your drunken stupor. Now, he's not calling them drunks, literally. He's saying spiritually, you're dumb. You're not seeing clearly. You're stumbling around theologically. Knock it off. Wake up, as is right. Do not go on sinning. For some of you have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. Oh, man, those are some hard words. Now, Paul is really careful. I, th I think it's 2 Corinthians where he says, I am not trying to shame you. I'm trying to help you. Paul goes out of his way not to embarrass needlessly the churches he writes to. So when he lays it out like this, that's some tough wording, isn't it? And can you, I mean, I'm sure I'd have several conversations on a Sunday morning if I said something like that. You guys are theologically drunk stumbling around so stupid you can't see what's right and true wake up get your hearts right and i'm saying this because you should be ashamed of yourselves let's pray you'd be like what like that's super harsh but how how much more reckless for a pastor to offer comfort as you wander away from jesus for a pastor not to say clearly you're going the wrong direction Pay attention. You're going to do damage to your family, your home, yourself, if you don't turn. I think this passage, if, I, if I'm just going to walk away with some, some, like, what should Mark do in light of this passage types of thoughts. I think we can minimize the importance of theological clarity and certainty when the Bible's clear. In other words, we can, we can see people and be gracious to them and say, oh, they're good brothers and sisters in Christ. But man, if they're missing some serious theological components, 
we should warn them, we should call them to turn, and we probably shouldn't partner with them spiritually. And so, so some of the churches in town that are, are probably preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ, we should probably also avoid in terms of close partnerships unless we can call them to change and deepen and correct theology. It's also a good warning. This is a faithful, this is an evangelical church that believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ with true believers. This could be us. Well, how do you know it's not us? <laughs> well, on a very literal small basis, but how many more texts or how many more theological um, pieces are so central to salvation, whether it's a doctrine of God, a doctrine of sin, a doctrine of man, that, that if we're not careful and rigorous in our own personal study of the Word of God, if we're not walking with the Lord and putting around us other faithful men and women, we might fall under the same indictment and we don't have an apostle writing us letters saying, Crossway, wake up from your drunken stupor. And so diligence, faithfulness to the Word of Christ, no, my, my wife and I have talked before, and she thinks one of the dilemmas in our Christian culture is just simply a lack of faithful Bible reading and understanding the Bible you read. Like, like some people read the Bible really faithfully, and they don't have a clue about what they're reading. They're just trying to be really disciplined because they love Jesus, and they know they're supposed to. And then there's a lot of people who just don't. I mean, you get to a passage like Nehemiah 3, and you just skip. You get to a couple of those passages and you're like, ah, man, I just don't get anything out of my Bible reading. And you kind of fall off. And my guess is, if any of you have been saved for a long time, that's been you at one time or another. Where you've drifted from reading your Bible on a regular basis and feeding on God's word. I think that's one of the ways the Lord protects us. If my reading of Psalm 1 is correct, those who are faithful, it's not that they only have godly friends, it's that their meditation is God's word, right? They delight in God's word. They meditate on it day and night. And so the solution isn't good friends. The solution's what? Get in the word. Try to understand it. Work on it. Let the Holy Spirit work on you. Know the word of God. All right. Any questions on the resurrection? I'm not looking up. I don't see any hands. Um, no, for real. Any, any questions? Hopefully that was clear enough. Maybe it was muddy enough that you don't have any questions to answer or ask me that I can answer. All right, I wanted to spend some time in prayer.